All right, I hope you have a note packet. Uh, one of our youth remarked to me that it looked like Pastor Jacob was teaching because the note packet was nice and thick today. Um, but the reality is there's a lot of white space on these pages. Um, so I think that there will be plenty of space to take notes on. And you've got your homework packet in there as well. So that's what's going on with the thickness of your note packet today. Um, the busyness of the night actually is going to be in our game of Bible drill, uh, uh, where we go very vigorously through the scriptures. I hope you brought your fingers, you know, that wax for your fingers to turn the pages quickly, uh, because as you'll see in the note packet, we have 35 passages, give or take, uh, to get through, maybe not 35, but a very significant number of passages that we're going to try to do, because my goal tonight is for us to see how what we are doing and discussing on Christ the God-man is a biblical thing, and therefore a theological thing. Okay? I think because the Bible teaches it, we study it theologically. We do not start with a doctrine as complicated as the Trinity or as complicated as the hypostatic union. So why do we have them? I'm going to suggest we have them because they are taught biblically and we use shorter terms or terms to describe what is contained biblically. Um, I want to begin out of Romans chapter 1. So uh, here's the way I, I'm going to do some of this. Lonnie, if you'll navigate to Romans 1, 3, and 4, Jacob to 1 Timothy 2, 5, and Tom, I'm going to pick on you for a minute and have you make it to Matthew chapter 8, 24 through 27. So just reading down the note packet uh, there, first table, second table, third table. Lonnie, I'm sorry you're at the first table all by yourself, so I may continually have you um, read the first table passage. Um, so, but I want to talk about why we believe Christ is fully God and fully man. And I believe one of the first and key texts for this actually is from Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, which is a passage we, we, I preached from several months ago. So, Lonnie, will you read that out? Others, you're welcome to navigate with us there. Uh, but, Lonnie, will you read that out for us? Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God, with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. All right. Yep. Declared to be Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right. Where in this text do we see the concept of the humanity of Christ? Or anything about his humanity? Descended from David. Okay. According to the flesh. So he's got a flesh and he came from somewhere. All right, we got the man. Where do we have the God? Declared the Son of God. Yep, declared to be the Son of God. All right. Now, it's there in this text. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Jacob. This was, by the way, in a lot of verse for our TNTers this week. So. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man... Christ Jesus. Okay. There is one God, not three, not two, not 17, not as according to Hinduism, many. One God, 
And then the end of the text is the man, Christ Jesus. So we have the, divinity, uh, the humanity present in that text. And the concept of that mediator or go-between, I would say, is the suggestion that he is both the God and man um, from that text. It's not quite as clear as Romans chapter 1. Matthew chapter 8. 24 through 27. 24 through 27. I'll have you read all of these. And this is a little bit different. It is not nearly as explicit. So we're going to have to think a little bit more about how we see in the narrative the divinity and the humanity. And behold, a violent storm developed on the sea so that the boat was being covered by the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep, and they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Okay. Where in this text do you see, we'll start with the easier one, the suggestion of his divinity? Rebuking the sea. You know, toddlers try that. I remember uh, vividly and very warmly standing at the edge of the ocean with just about every one of my kids and them trying to tell the waves to stop. And it just doesn't work for them, but it is hilarious. Okay. Um, it doesn't work. God alone can rebuke the sea and calm the waves. And the disciples' reaction, the, the final words that Tom read were essentially what? What kind of man is yeah, this? Yeah, what kind of man is this? They were recognizing there was something unusual about his humanity which I would actually suggest is part of his humanity. They recognized him as man, but as a different type of man. The divine in the human is already being suggested here, but I think there's some other humanity at work here. What else suggests the humanity of Christ in this passage? He's sleeping. He's sleeping. <laughs> and unlike Baal in 1 Kings 18, God does not sleep. Jesus in humanity at sleep in a boat. Jesus in humanity wondered at by the disciples. We know he's a man. Jesus in divinity calms the storm. Jesus in divinity, the disciples recognize this isn't what men do. So when we talk about the incarnate or God becoming or adding humanity... When we talk about the, the hypostatic union, the union of God in humanity, in the person of Christ, how Christ became human, we're not doing this out of a desire to complicate things theologically. We're doing this because we're wrestling with the same thing that the disciples were in the boat. What type of man is this? Clearly, He's not normal, but clearly he's still a man. 
So what I'm going to try to do in, for the beginning time is to walk through a variety of texts that talk about the deity of Christ. And we're largely going to look at the deity of Christ and how he is divine and how he is God. And then we're going to transition to texts that talk about him and his humanity. And we're going to see both of those. But at the beginning, I wanted us to see them side by side, largely in the same text, so that we can recognize there's something unique going on here. Now, uh, just for the fun of it, I'm going to quote, because I thought it was a good quote, I'm going to quote uh, Pastor Jacob's favorite Puritan. John Owen, by the way, uh, someone has referred, I have have a new favorite Puritan based upon the references to the fact uh, that we now are homeschooling and my wife is eating a very much make-it-your-own-home diet. So with multiple kids homeschooling them and a cook everything at your own, my wife is pretty much a modern-day Puritan, so my my wife has now become my favorite Puritan. Um, So... Anyways, joking on that one, Pastor Jacob's favorite Puritan, John Owen, says this in The Glory of Christ about Jesus. He is God and man in one person. In him are two distinct natures, the one eternal, infinite, immense, almighty, the form and essence of God. The other having a beginning in time, finite limited, confirmed to a certain place, which is our nature. I think the easiest one to to recognize there is in that human nature. God can be classically, God is all-knowing, he's all-present, and he's all-powerful. But yet Jesus, in the second person of the Trinity, was not in Galilee and D.C. at the same time. He's confined to a region. Jesus moved from one location to the other. He wasn't on the lake and on the mountain at the same time. He was not omnipresent in his humanity. So I think it's a good quote. I think it's a valuable thing to recognize. And by the way, what we're going to talk about tonight, the way in which we both address it and consider it, and the way in which uh, we can err if we emphasize only one of these, are problems that have plagued the church since probably the writing of some of the epistles. There's a high likelihood that 1 John was written to reduce error or to teach against an error regarding the deity and humanity of Christ. It goes way back. The challenges of understanding it go way back. So we're not stepping into new waters today by any means when we wade into the waters of the deity and humanity. And when we only note one, we end up in some sort of what has historically been a heresy, to only see one. And I think it's pretty clear in these when we only see one, we've got to throw out part of Romans 1, we've got to throw out part of Matthew 8 to declare that Jesus is only human or only uh, divine. But there are still variations of that present. For example, um, and we'll get to this later, much later, but Islam doesn't have room for God to become a man. They're okay with God being God or man being man, but not God becoming a man. Jehovah's Witnesses are not okay here either. There's a variety of different groups that still wrestle through and arrive at 
heretical conclusions regarding God and man. All right, I want to walk through. By the way, I'm taking a lot of these notes and a lot of this material uh, from Capitol Hill Baptist Church's core seminars, which are based upon Grudem's systematic theology text, uh, pulling some other stuff from some other places. But this is not, this is my own compilation of a lot of others' hard work. Okay. Um, all right, let, let's see. Uh, Lonnie, I'm going to have you go over to Daniel. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Uh, Elizabeth, do you mind making it to... Matthew 9, 6 through 8. And then Julie, if possible, Matthew 25, 31 and 32. So uh, we want to talk about the deity of Christ. We're going to emphasize that for a few minutes. We're going to come back around and emphasize the humanity of Christ after that. Uh, Daniel chapter 7. Lonnie, please. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. From that text, we see the Son of Man terminology. Um, but in addition to that, the, the divine side of things, I would actually suggest from that text, is the concept of an everlasting dominion that does not pass away in a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. Uh, that's where I would largely look at for that divine side of things. And speaking of that, Ju uh, let's see, Julie, I want to jump to you actually uh, and do the Matthew passage before this time. So if you'll read that Matthew passage for us from Matthew 25. So when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Yes. All right. The reason I wanted to put those back to back is Matthew 25 looks like a fulfillment or a further elaboration of that Daniel passage about the Son of Man and the nations coming before, and Jesus is writing this of himself and saying this of himself. Sorry. Jesus is saying this of himself at this point, okay? And separating one from the other nations and a glorious, weighty throne um, there. Let's go Matthew chapter 9, 6 through 8. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. It's a narrative, so I'm going to ask the question. Why did I select this text as showing that the Son of Man is divine? He just did a divine thing. Which was, there, I think there's two divine things, but at least which one are you referring to? Yep, the healing, okay? The healing man on the spot requires that, and that's really his proof. He's like, hey, I'm going to forgive sins. If we looked ahead uh, or look back, we talk about the forgiveness of sins, and I'm going to show you that because that's what he said in verse 2, is take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, hey, wait a minute. Sins are forgiven by God. You don't just get to say that. 
And Jesus, anticipating the discussion and knowing what's going on, says, all right, let me show you how God I am. So that when I tell you your sins are forgiven, you can actually believe me that I'm saying I'm saying that on behalf of God because of what I can do is the work of God. So in the narrative there in Matthew 9, he's referring to himself as the son of man and yet demonstrating that he is divine, both through forgiving sins, but displaying that because you can't measure that. It's like, oh, okay, your sins are forgiven. I can't prove they're not. So let me show you what I can do. Somebody's rebuttal is, well, okay, you can say that all you want to, your sins are forgiven, but how do I know that actually happens? We're not standing before God in the eternal judgment. We don't, we don't get a picture into heaven. All right, your, your balance has now been changed. You are no longer a debtor to God in sin. You are accounted righteous before God, as we, if we use Paul's terms. We don't have an insight into the window of heaven to see the heavenly account there. So let me show you how God I am. Pick up your path and walk. He's divine. In the narrative, terminology, son of man. Also, using some of the terminology we saw earlier from Romans 1, we won't read it again, but Romans 1, some one of you noted a few minutes ago, talks about him descending from David. Another term that we often see Christ defined as is a descendant of David or the son of David. So I want you to see how the son of David is predicted in the Old Testament to be divine. And then we've already read from Romans 1 where that divinity is pulled in, but also we could look at the the passage in the New Testament that refers where Christ is talking about the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my feet until I'll... Uh, make your enemies a footstool, and his reading back from the Psalms of that. We could do that. We're not going to Psalm chapter 2. I'm going to skip Lonnie on this one. Um, Miss Nancy, would you read Psalm 2, 6, and 7 in just a minute for me? Uh, back row, uh, Beth, are you navigating to Psalm 45, 6, and 7? And Dave, no, you got something with you to read? Okay. Um, Lonnie, if you'll do Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 for me. So, uh, so Psalm 2, 6, and 7, early here in the Psalms. Nancy, if you'll read it loud for us. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Mm-hmm. All right, so this is likely looking ahead. It's possible some would try to argue that this means only, hey, just a descendant like David and a good king. There seems to be more suggested here than a good king descending from David. It seems to be the the concept of the nations as we get into verse 8, your heritage, the ends of the earth, your possession. There seems to be more going on here. It's made more explicit when we read from Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. A forever throne, the son of David looking ahead here is having a forever throne. And it is one that is loves righteousness, hating wickedness, and anointed there. All right, let's get into talking about the son of David more explicitly divine. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, 
and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Okay. I think it's a little more explicit here. Where do you see or what were the terms there to me when I, if you ask me that? I say, hey, the concept here is he is, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. We got the divine there. Um, there's other things that we can wrestle with. We can be unclear maybe on Psalms, those passages in Psalms, but the term mighty God seems to speak of the divine. Okay? And, and the coming from the throne of David and over his kingdom, we've got that one there. All right? Son of man, mainly trying to use some Old Testament concepts here, son of man, son of David. Now, more New Testament, almost exclusively New Testament going forward. Jesus is called Lord and God. Matthew chapter 1. I'll read for us this time. Matthew chapter 1. Uh, Jacob, Romans 9, 5, please. And Tom, if you will make it to Titus 2, 13. In Matthew chapter 1, similar to Isaiah, the looking ahead, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why do I believe on the basis of Matthew 1, 21 through 23 that Jesus is divine? Because the name Emmanuel, which he was called, means God with us. Okay. Jacob. Uh, Romans 9, 5. Yes. Uh, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the christ who is god over all blessed forever amen okay belong christ who is god forever we at this point we should already be thinking we have no option but to consider that christ is divine but sometimes we're just going to keep piling on, and I think it's valuable for us to pile on and pile on and pile on on the divinity of Christ because the scriptures pile on and pile on and pile on on the divinity of Christ. Okay, Titus 2.13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Okay. He is our great God and Savior. It's one person, Jesus, great God and Savior, which goes to the Trinity stuff. If we want to go back and see how that loops in, you've got great God and Savior, Jesus. Okay? Not only is Jesus called Lord and God, but he's not just called that by others. He refers to himself as God. Uh, this is something that some would challenge and say, well, you know, the church decided that Jesus was going to be God. Jesus didn't know that he was God. Jesus seems in John's gospel to know that he is God and to suggest to, in a way that others think that Jesus is God. So over in John chapter 8, I'll take it for us to this, this time. John chapter 8 followed by John 10. John eight fifty four. the story goes this way. Jesus interacting with religious leaders. says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. 
but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say to you, I do not know him, sorry, if I were to say to you, I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. Those are direct words. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And they're, they're looking at him and saying, man, Abraham was thousands of years ago. And they say, you're not even 50. And yet you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was I am, the word I am, they are looking back to that Old Testament name of God of I am. And you're like, well, maybe that's, you know, is Jesus really saying he's God? Well, they certainly said, thought so because the next reaction is they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself in the temple. Not only did Jesus claim to be God here, but everybody around him knew what he was claiming because they were ready to stone him for blasphemy. Not just here. Same thing happens two chapters later. John 10, 30 through 33. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Trinitarian implications there. Claiming to be divine. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered him, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? They answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So even the Pharisees seemed to understand that Jesus was claiming to be the God in flesh. Not only that, Jesus is worshipped as God. Okay, so we have him claiming to be God. The New Testament church thought of him as God. He is called Lord and God. He is worshipped as God. Uh, let's see. I, I don't even remember who's next. Elizabeth, will you take the Luke passage, please? Uh, Beth, I don't know if it's you or Julie, but if you'll take Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And then, Miss Nancy, if you'll do Hebrews 1, 6 for me. Okay. Jesus is worshipped as God in Luke chapter 24. Read for us, please. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. Okay. They were not only worshipping him, but then notice that at the end of it, they're in the temple blessing and praising God. They're worshiping him. And a good Old Testament Jew, a good Jew would never have worshiped anything but God alone, having repeated their entire life, the Shema, that the Lord our God is one. Now they are worshiping him. He is receiving worship. So they would only worship God. There's clearly something going on that they're worshiping him as God. And then we get to verse 53 and they're in the temple also blessing God. They are worshiping Christ as God at his ascension. Similar thing recorded over in Matthew, by the way. Okay? Let's get into Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay. Worshiping and bowing down before Jesus as Lord and Master is an act of glorifying God the Father. Worshiping the Son glorifies God the Father. Right? So, if that is the case, it was appropriate in the New Testament to worship Christ and bow before him as a means of approaching our Trinitarian God. 
Often we do think of it as through um, the Son, but we bow before recognizing as an act of service, obedience, and his recognizing his worth that we bow before the Son. That's not what you do to a not God. It is what you do to God. Okay? Hebrews 1.6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says that all God's angels worship him. Okay. Here, bringing out the concept, even the angel, the angelic worship of the firstborn. Okay. Angelic worship of Christ. Jesus is divine. Not only is he worshiped as God, not only is he claimed to be God, not only is he called Lord and God, and we've already looked at this a little bit. Um, and I think for time's sake, I'm not going to bring out all of these texts. I want to throw these into your homework realm. Look through those Christological passages of the divinity of Christ. Uh, key passages on what he, who he is, is pre, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God in John 1. Hebrews 1 um, is already part of your reading suggestion for homework. And then Colossians 1 is he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all, all creation. Okay? When you look at Jesus, you see God, and you see him as creator. You see him in revealing we have a God who has revealed himself. If we go back way back to the doctrine of revelation, we have a God who's revealed himself through his word and through his work and through the person of Christ. We see God's revelation of himself. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. And I don't mean that with your physical eyes that, that you know, the picture that we have in our brain of uh, Jesus as a cartoon figure is exactly the physical representation of God. What I mean is you want to know what God acts like and is like and what is, his, what, is, what is he, what are his attributes? Look at the person of Christ. We can see that easily in the person of Christ. Colossians 1. All right, going a little bit further on this, not only is Jesus divine, we're going to get into his humanity in a minute, but... He was not a human who added divinity. If we're going to use any addition terminology or becoming terminology, he was not a human who became divine or who added divinity. He was divine who added or became humanity. I'm, okay, I'm comfortable with either of those terms. Others would not be comfortable using both of them or one of them. But we would all say, listen, Jesus was always divine. There was never a time when he was not divine. There was a time when he was not existing as a human. Want to look into Philippians chapter 2. Uh, are you still there, Beth? Okay. Read 2, 6, and 7 for us, please. And I want you to listen as she reads for why I would... This text doesn't come out and use these words. So I want you to listen for why I would say this text shows that Jesus did not become God. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Okay. Why would I say that these verses are important 
for what he took on and what he already had. Now, the text says he took on the form of man. So that would be the adding or becoming human. But the beginning, read that first phrase again for us. He was in the form of God. Though he was in the form of God. Past tense. Pre-incarnation, the Son was divine. He did not become divine. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, I will read for us. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I would suggest the past tense in this suggests the same thing, but I would, I would much more, it's much more vivid to me in the Philippians text. Okay. Go ahead, Jacob. Did I say something? Yeah. Uh, as it relates to the language of mm-hmm. adding humanity or um, becoming human, mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you noted that some people would be a little bit uncomfortable with some of those terminologies, and I think I would, in the sense that nothing is added necessarily to God Himself for Him to become something else, and nothing He doesn't become something else from His human from His divinity. Um, so the term I would like, and this is just a different preference, I guess, is I think um, highlights the idea that he took on, which is he assumed humanity mm-hmm. in his divinity. Okay. And Jacob's bringing up a good point there, and he is, he is more comfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable with he assumed, because I think uh, when you make an assumption, I just have that classic uh, way of explaining what assumption is that is not good for you or me, um, because it's not a true thing. Um, so there's, I, I am okay with saying added without becoming more or different, but I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Others are not. It's just different nuances in which, which way do we want to protect ourselves from being misunderstood? Because we are highly likely to be misunderstood. And what is the best way to use our language to try to not be misunderstood on a concept that is nearly impossible to articulate? How can he be fully God, fully man? And yet, one, not half and half, fully God, fully man. How can he be God and man? There are, brains are exploded by that fact. And our language is limited to even trying to explain what we are try, what we do have in our head. So it's what's the best language that we can use. And for different angles, there's different languages that are better. It may be best to use the language that Jacob suggests. My simple brain, I'm okay with added, um, but I recognize it opens up some things. So, 
Um, good, but thanks for explaining the why behind that for us, because I, at this moment, could not remember the why. So thanks. Deity of Christ. We want to, I want to get into the humanity of Christ, but before I get into the humanity of Christ, any questions that come to mind, and I may defer them to later, but any questions about the deity of Christ section? So Christ is divine the same way the Father and the Spirit are divine. What do you want me to say to that? I want to know what you think. <laughs> Yes, Christ is divine in the same way that God the Father and the Holy Spirit are. He did not become divine. All right, let's talk about the humanity. Because some wrestled with the divinity of Christ. Others have wrestled with whether or not he actually was human or did he only appear to be human. What type of man is this? Does he only appear to be human? That's something that the early church was wrestling with. The early questions about a heresy known as docetism suggested he only appeared to be human. Early in the church, they're wrestling with that one. Not whether or not really he was divine. The more common thing that they're dealing with was whether or not he was human. Or whether did he just appear to be human? First John 5, 6, 3, I don't think you have one. Uh, talks about this. The Spirit is one. He testifies. There are three that testify. The Father, the Spirit, the Son. The testimony of God is this. His born testimony, testifying of his Son. There's a variety of ways in which different scholars wrestle through what New Testament books uh, wrestle with whether or not Jesus appears to be human and whether or not some think that Jesus, that this came out of a, environment where people thought that all matter was evil and uh, this is by and large actually blends into Islam. If it's physical, it's got to be bad. Therefore, God can't be physical. Can't be in the material realm because the material is bad. Our earth is broken. Material realm is broken. So theologically, philosophically in their background, many began to wrestle with whether or not Jesus could only appear to be human and wasn't actually human because their philosophical and theological categories of the way that the world was, was they observed the brokenness of it and said there's no way that a God could step in and not be corrupted. And yet, we have the claims that he is God, so maybe he was only human. Oh, sorry, maybe he only appeared to be human, but that is not what the Bible suggests. But I actually want to start with the virgin birth of Christ. Okay. Is it necessary to be born of a virgin to be human? No. All of us are human and not born of a virgin. Okay, So that is not necessity. But often when we look at the uh, Christ child, there's questions regarding the Virgin Mary at the time of his birth. So Isaiah chapter 7 looks ahead to that. Lonnie, if you'll navigate there for me, please. And then Nancy, I'm going to have you read Luke 135 in a minute. I'm going to read the Matthew passage for us. All 
All right, Isaiah 7, 14, passage we often read around Christmas time because it says this very thing. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay. Concept there. There are maybe some near future prediction of a young woman having a child, but that is traditionally thought of to look forward also to the coming of the Christ child. Okay. Matthew 1, 18. Birth of Jesus took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, not from Joseph, before they came together. All right, the text pretty explicit there. All right, text continues on and says, he says in verse 20, the angel appeared to him a dream. Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She hasn't cheated on you. It's the Holy Spirit. Okay, by the way, this is one problem that Islam often has with Christianity is they see God having a physical sexual relationship through the Holy Spirit with Mary. That is not what the scripture is teaching here. Okay? There is a miraculous, a mis, there a miraculous spiritual way in which God is forming a child absent a earthly father or sexual procreation, just as God can speak and a world can exist and put stars into a world, he can easily put a baby into a womb. Minus the way that which we produce children. The text is suggesting that it's not Joseph, and it is certainly not suggesting a physical relationship here, or else Joseph would have great reason to be offended by God. God, what have you done to my betrothed wife? What have you done to violate her? That is not the approach that we have Joseph saying. Text continues on. By the way, I'm going to get to verse 25. Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. The new concept there again of sexual relations. And he called his name Jesus. But also, but he knew her not until she had given birth to her son. So was Mary perpetually a virgin? Not according to Matthew 1.25. Okay. So just while we're in the virgin birth, suggested that virgin birth, but Mary was not perpetually a virgin. Okay. Luke 1.35. Yes, James and Jesus' brothers. Evidence of that one. Thank you. And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, Son of God. Okay. I want to add this last little phrase. This is similar to some of the other terminology, but the child will be called Holy, the Son of God. The concept of the holiness of the offspring of Mary in the virgin birth from this text is likely important. Now, when I was growing up in the uh, church tradition that I grew up in and the, getting my religious education in my private Christian school, it was always taught to me that the reason the virgin birth was necessary is because sin is transmitted through the Father and it's only through the earthly Father that sin is transmitted to the child. So the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin meant he had to be born of a virgin for him to be sinless. That is 
theological wrestling, which may or may not be accurate, but is not required biblically. It is suggested, though, I think, from, Roman, or from Luke 135, that in some way, shape, or form, the conception of Christ in the virgin birth is an aspect of his holiness. But if God, so let's put it this way, if God were to have another virgin have a child, would that person automatically not have a sin nature? Theologically, I would say that is not a necessity. So I'm aware of no other virgin birth. I do not anticipate my daughters ever informing me that that is how they are with child. And every parent that has been informed of that by their children before has said that's happened once and only once. That is not a good excuse. But in that, should it ever possibly happen, could God do it again? I'd say God could possibly do it again. But would that make that child without a sin nature? I do not think that it is a requirement theologically that we wrestle with how sin came through Adam as a father and how Jesus not having a earthly father therefore did not have a sin nature. Some have wrestled with it. It's a simple explanation. If you want to hold on to it, that's fine. I'm okay with that. But you don't have to hold that because it is not a requirement being taught by the Bible. It is a theological position that we have adopted based upon how we try to rationalize the passing on of the sin nature. Right? So what I'm trying to do tonight is talk to you about what is a necessity biblically and what is a theological conception that we have reason possibly to believe but is not a requirement based upon how you're going to interpret scriptures. By the way, I recognize that that on Sunday and today, I have not given you a 1,000% how uh, sin is passed down from one generation to the other. The Bible, I don't think, gives us that nearly explicitly, as explicitly as it does the rest of the stuff. So I want to major on what's being majored on. And in future uh, semesters, when we wrestle with the doctrine of sin, we can talk about the how sin is passed from generation to generation, how we are both sinners and sinful. Uh, but I recognize that I have not given you a, here's exactly how it's done. All right, let's get back to the humanity of Christ, though. Okay. So, born of a virgin, born as a baby. Luke chapter 2. I'll read for us. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. He was born as a baby. Jesus had human flesh and was a baby. But he did not stay a baby. He grew up. Okay? He had a human body that was little, got big. Just like all of the other little monsters that are born, they start little, they get big. Okay. Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. He got taller. Unclear how tall he was, but he got bigger. Right. He had a human body. He's getting bigger. John chapter 24, or Luke 20, sorry, Luke 24 He's got a post-resurrection body. He's not a ghost then. He wasn't a ghost before. He's now 
He it does have some sort of different body post-resurrection, but in Luke 24, 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it from them, and elsewhere they're touching him, and he's eating things. He's got a body before resurrection, after resurrection. His body got bigger, and his body got, I would say, better post-resurrection on that sake. Okay, so he didn't get bigger post-resurrection, but it got better post-resurrection. He did some cool stuff, but he was still touchable. Not only that, having a body as a human, Jesus was capable of thirst. In John 19, 28, knowing all it was finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Jesus got thirsty. Not only did Jesus get thirsty having a human body, but Jesus got hungry. When we look over in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 2, Jesus is hungry. No, he is not hangry. He is just hungry. All right, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Jesus had an appetite. He had an earthly body that did earthly body stuff. He slept. It got bigger. It was little. It got bigger. It experienced pain. Jesus had an earthly body. There is no question that Jesus had an earthly body here. Now, not only did Jesus have an earthly body, but he had a human mind. Okay? Jesus increased in wisdom, Luke 2.52, and stature, favor with God and man. Jesus increased in wisdom. Now, this starts to get a little more confusing. How did the divine become more wise? Well, I would suggest that in his divinity, he never increased in his wisdom because there was no increase to have he had. But in his humanity, he increased in wisdom. So did Jesus learn how to read? Quite possibly. Did Jesus learn how to do math? Yes. Did Jesus' mom sit him down and say, here's how you do your Hebrew ABCs? All right. Likely so. Did he have to learn the days of the week and maybe even do it in a song? Yeah. How did he, holding back all that his divinity already knew, learn? Well, that's a complicated thing for us to recognize, but the text is not giving us a Here's exactly how it occurred, but it is telling us he grew in his wisdom. How did they know that? I don't know. Maybe an interview with Mary. Let me tell you when Jesus didn't know his days of the week and he got Friday confused with Wednesday. But he got better. By 12, he, was, he knew his days of the week. I don't know how all that works. The scriptures don't tell us. But what they do tell us is what we have to believe, and that's that he grew not only bigger, but wiser in his humanity. Not only that, he had human emotions. Jesus had emotions, and there were some things that he didn't know. By the way, Mark 13, 32 is a text that suggests to us that there are some things that he didn't know regarding God and what he was doing, but concerning the day or the hour, no one knows returning, regarding when he will return, make all things well, heaven and earth. All right. No one knows, nor not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Do I think Jesus knows when all things are going to be made well now? I think he does. In his humanity, did he know? 
No. I would say in his humanity, he did not know that. All right, in addition to that, he had emotions in John chapter 12, verse 27. My soul is troubled. What shall I say, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Jesus could be troubled and anxious without sin, but bothered by things. He wept at human emotions. Jesus, as a human, cried. I have all ideas when James stepped on his foot or punched him in the face at some point because that's what boys do. He probably cried. And yet he did not retaliate in sin. So I'd love to know how he handled his younger brother's terrors, you know, so that I could have known how I should handle my younger brother's terrors without sin. But we don't have Jesus, the model older brother, on how to handle the younger brother's terrors and not sin. But did Jesus cry in that moment? Likely so. Okay. Jesus was a human suggested by this, and yet a human without sin. 2 Corinthians 5. Tom, if you'll go 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Uh, let's see. Chris, do you have a Bible with you? you can use? Okay. If you'll do Hebrews 4, 16, please. And then, Lonnie, if you'll do 1 Peter 1 for me. Okay. Without sin is the emphasis that I want to do here, which, by the way, I'm going to tell you means that if Jesus could be fully human and without sin, it means that sin is not required to be human doesn't mean that humans are not going to sin and don't have a sin nature, but it means that you can be fully human without sin. It, sinfulness is not a requirement of the definition of humanity. It came in through the brokenness of humanity and plagues all of humanity minus Christ, but it, it is not in the definition of what it means to be human. Tom. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay. Made him who knew no sin. Not acquainted with sin, be sin on our behalf. All right, Hebrews 4. Uh, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and the help in our time of need. All right. Yep, I think so. I was looking ahead in my notes, though. Um, confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help I should have done 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every way been tempted as we are yet without sin. That was what I was going for in there. And then verse 16. So I, that was a correction for those of you watching from that is Hebrews 4. 15 and 16, not 16 and 17. All right, 1 Peter 1, 19. But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. We've been redeemed through the precious blood of the lamb without blemish or spot. Okay? Without sin. The claim of the Bible is he's growing in his humanity and yet he is doing so absent sin. All right, Jesus was the second Adam, Romans 5, 18 and 19. Which, by the way, suggests that the first Adam is not a myth or a representative at large of a, com of a, a bunch of different people because Jesus was one person and he was a real person. 
So for there to be a second one that was one and was real suggests likely that the first one was one and was real. Other ways to wrestle with that, but I think that's an important thing when we think about origins and whether or not uh, there was a historical Adam and Eve or not. There was a historical Jesus. He is referred to as the second Adam. So there's likely, according to Paul, a first actual Adam if there was a second one and he was real. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, 45 talks about the second Adam there as well. I'm not going to spend any time on that one. All right, Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 17 says this, as the God-man, he is the perfect sacrifice. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect to offer the sacrifice to God on behalf, suggesting fully human, not just appearance of human. Is this as strong as fully divine? No. Is it strong enough? I think absolutely so. If we were bringing this to a jury on the basis of the evidence, do we find him guilty of being fully human? Yes. Could we desire more? Possibly. Is the evidence there though? Yes. Right? Could Christ sin? This is a toss-up before we read it first. Was Jesus capable of sin? Have some fun with this one. Jacob, you're not allowed to jump in yet. <laughs> Could Jesus sin? Was he capable of sinning? It would go against his divine nature. Okay. It would go against his divine nature to do so. So I'm hearing a suggestion he was not capable of sinning. Like the rock question, right? Like, could he be the rock that he didn't pick up? What do you keep going with that? You know, with the rock thing, but what do you mean? Why is this a, a bad question? Because he is capable of sin, but he wouldn't sin. Okay. A little bit there. All right, let me rephrase this question. Was Jesus tempted to sin? Yes. yes. But can God be tempted to sin? So which one is it now? Now, like, I've gotten the no, I've gotten the yes. He was tempted in all ways like we were. He was tempted in all ways like we were. That's what Hebrews 2 says. But what does James 1.13 say? Somebody go over to James 1.13. We could have spent a lot of time on this one, by the way. You want me to read it? Yeah, go for it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Wait a minute now. Jesus was tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin, but God himself cannot be tempted. But he was holy man. But so, was fully holy and God was part, and Jesus was partly human. Jesus was fully human and fully God. So the easiest explanation of this is this is where in his humanity he was tempted as we were, 
without sin in his divinity incapable of actually being tempted. That's the solution that we get to. I'm glad you guys got there quickly. Um, there is lots of theological wrestling with this one. Was Jesus capable of sinning or not capable of sinning? And it's not in the sense of could he make a rock that he couldn't lift. It's more could he actually be tempted? And I prefer the simple explanation of in his divinity, no. In his humanity, yes. Um, but there's lots of discussion on this one. Theologians uh, can wrestle with it. Most of the time, I, I don't think it gets too ugly in the wrestling with it, but it is one of those like, hey, let's spend a lot of time in seminary talking about this one. And it's a good wrestling exercise from two different biblical texts, which, by the way, seem to suggest two different things. So did God not know what he was doing, or is there something going on that's deeper? I think it's something that's going on that's deeper in the divine nature and the human nature. It's okay. evident Satan thought he could. Yeah, Satan thought he could. Or else he wouldn't have tried. Good point. I don't recall that argument. Thank you for advancing something I did not remember. But yes, Satan certainly thought he could. Yeah. Okay. So I am not going to uh, walk through historical explanations of the God-man um, sake of time at a future term, we will walk through church history and we will see how in the early hundreds, that second century church, they were wrestling with some of these things, how uh, multiple councils in the 300s and into the fours dealt with it. What I will give you is uh, the, the essentially final definition for the humanity and deity of Christ is the Chalcedonian definition from 451 AD at the bottom. It's loaded with theological terms. You thought Pastor Jacob gave you a lot of theological terms. You will see a whole lot more here. But I want you to see the way in which they wrestled with it. And they had to wrestle with all of this stuff. Did he appear to be human? How did he have one nature and only one nature? How was it a human nature? How was it a divine nature? Did they mix up? Was he only exercising one part of the time and one another part of the time? Lots of different ways that they carefully nuanced things on this and based upon the way that people have taken things you end up in various both heresies cults and other religions about the divinity and humanity or lack of one of those of christ um, i think that is most clear in islam so i want to walk through a handout this is actually some of my stuff here um, really old stuff that I actually preached on at some point so if you remember this, this is almost seven years ago. What I did here is I pulled a scholar on Islam and what it teaches about the divinity and the humanity and compared that with Christianity. Um, his, that reference still works, I believe, um, but it's old there, so I left the, the date on there copying that quickly, but that work is still exists and is still available. Phillips is a scholar of Islam says, if God did not become a man, did he have a son? Since he's able to do all things, he should be able to have a son. The concept of Islam, God is able, he's high, powerful, he's capable. But this claim reduces God to the lowly status of his creation. And that is the exact point of Philippians 2. Jesus humbled himself, taking on manhood. There's a contrast here. Okay? In Jesus, we have God's love on display through the humble identification with man and the, is the purpose of mankind's redemption. Upon the Quran, 
Philip says, based upon the Quran, in reference to Jesus and his mother Mary, he confirmed their humanity by saying simply, they both used to eat food. That's good enough. Jesus was a human. Mary was a human. That is the point. Christianity says Jesus didn't appear to be a man. He was a man. He was able to eat, sleep, grow. As a man, he was able to die. Without becoming man, God could not die for man's sins. God doesn't die. By the way, we could look at this. How in the cross, the Son of God, as God, did not actually die. But as man, he died. God can't die. That would be ceasing to exist or to be separated from God in a different ways. So we can wrestle with, there's some theological wrestling there, but I would suggest that, well, again, we're helped here with the concept that in his humanity, his heart stopped, his brain activity ceased, and he died. But did he cease from existence as God at that moment? I would suggest no. Okay. Without being God, though, no man could be the perfect sacrifice. Philip says the concept of God not becoming man is very important for every human being to grasp because it lies at the foundation of the difference between Islam and all other existing religions. All other religions have distorted concepts of God to one degree or another, and I would very much say the same thing except substitute a couple of words. The concept of God becoming man is very important. It lies at the foundation of the difference between Christianity and other religions. All other religions have a distorted concept of God to one degree or another where he is not willing to intervene and is not capable of becoming man without being corrupted. And yet Christianity, I would say, suggests there is a bigger version of God than the one suggested by Islam that would say that there is no God like him who can be that great because he can be that great on earth, not just absent from earth. It is greater to be capable of sinless perfection while on earth than not capable of it while being on earth. To be in it but not corrupted by it is greater. Philip says the important idea which needs to be understood is God did not become a man. He is unique and he deserves to be worshipped. And we would say, yep, he did become a man. He is unique and he deserves to be worshipped. Okay. One last one forms the foundation for salvation. I'll let you look at that on your own. A lot of material. I wanted to start with the Bible and show you what the Bible requires that we teach. Putting it together, the words that we use to put it together, we've got bad ways to put it together that open us up to more controversy and more potential problems. We've got some good ways to put it together um, and then we've got some big theological terms that we can use to put together about the hypostatic union, about the incarnation, um, or we can refer to them as the God-man. There are lots of different ways to do it. But what we have to do is have a God who is, a Jesus who is God and who is man. And that's necessary for the atonement, which Pastor Ron will walk us through next week. Questions? Whether he really was both God and man—that's all what I've always heard. It's all I've been taught. I've been Christian for yep. many, many years. Yep. You've had the benefit of always being taught what is correct. We would say. Yeah. But others that don't have that benefit of the foundation that you have have questions. And Islam, and you'll see in here, 
um, in your note homework packet a way in which to engage with practitioners of Islam regarding the divinity of the Son of God. There's some suggestions there for whether we put that into our witness, which I think are valuable beyond uh, interaction with uh, practitioners of Islam. But I wanted to bring that back into a missions angle. Heady subject, difficult, separates us from Islam and many other religions, by the way. What else? Are there any other thoughts or questions from tonight? Go for it. All other religions are. That one's about the worst because it's vicious. Yeah. All religions are corrupt and uh, from Satan as a father of lies, teaching lies. I would not single out any um, on that way. Jacob? I also wanted to say, I mean, just the fact that he is the God-man, fully both, in his own person, um, shows why he is the only one that's able to be the mediator between God and man. So Christ doesn't just point the way to salvation, but he is the way to salvation because it's in himself where God and humanity Come back I was just trying to not get two weeks ahead since two weeks ahead is when we're talking about the mediating work of Christ. So I was trying to only give a one week look ahead, but you've given a two. So that's good. Are you doing that one? Yeah. Okay. No wonder you're there already. <laughs> Any other questions from tonight? All right, let's pray. God, thank you that you know what it is to be human to face our struggles, and yet you can, as our high priest, you can intercede for us. You live and intercede for us, Christ, and you have offered yourself as our sacrifice, as the perfect representative of humanity, and yet as God, is perfect for us. God, thank you that you know our needs and that you met them in Christ. Would we be a people who exalt you for your work in the world and your work in redemption and your work in intercession? Thank you, Jesus, that we can see and know God through you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.